so welcome to our latest podcast. This one I'm going to be focusing on the testing that you guys have got coming up this week. So I thought it would be a good point really to talk about the different kind of tests you're going to be doing and also a little bit of background around the tests to give you a little bit of information about um, why we're doing it, what the zones are going to tell us, what the numbers are going to tell us and what to actually do with those numbers once you get them. So first up, testing overview. This is the section where we're going to talk about uh, why we actually do tests, what the zones tell us and things like that. So in the bigger picture, really, we want to collect as much information as we can on your guys' training and your performance so we can keep track of it. And then in an ideal world, we're going to look for improvements along the way that are going to back things up for you in terms of, yes, I am getting fitter and I can prove that I'm getting fitter because these numbers are getting better. So there's, there's three areas we're going to look at here. We're going to look at numbers we can test on the run, numbers we can test on the bike, and numbers that we can test on the swim. So what we're going to be looking at in all of these is a way to test what we're going to define as threshold. Now, first up, there's a bit of a disclaimer here from me. If you study sports science, you'll know there's about 23 different phrases for threshold. They can all mean different things. And so it's important that we're going to be using the phrase threshold and we understand it in the same way. So for the purposes of the training that we're going to be doing within Team Oxygen Addict, threshold is functional threshold or more to the point, the power or the pace that you can sustain for one hour in a race situation. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to make you do an hour in testing and training on your own. In fact, we're certainly not. And it also doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sustain this power or this pace or this heart rate in training on your own. You probably wouldn't be able to. But it's the kind of number that you would get out if we tested you in a one hour time trial on the bike or a running race that lasted for an hour, or a swimming race that lasted for an hour. This is the kind of number that would come out at the end of it that would give us accurate data and would say, right, okay, um, I'll give you an example for myself as a runner. If I was to do a 10-mile run race, I would come in just inside the 60 minutes, and so that would tell me that my functional threshold pace for running was about six minutes a mile. So that's the kind of area that we're looking at, is developing a number in each of the sports that we can relate back to and that we can then draw zones up around so that we can say, OK, that number is your functional threshold zone. And there are a number of zones around underneath that. So that basically that tells us what the zones are in relation to threshold. And obviously we can go a bit harder than that threshold pace. And there are some zones up there above that pace. And there are several zones below the threshold pace. And uh, we're going to define those in terms of how we're going to look at them inside Team Oxygen Addict. So. Inside here, we're going to have five zones for heart rate, for power, for pace, and they're all going to kind of be related to each other. And you can think of each one as being interchangeable across the sports. So if you number the zones from one to five, with one being the easiest and five being the hardest, our zone one is a recovery zone where we're really we're doing extremely light exercise in this zone. And the purpose of it is only ever to promote blood flow back to the muscles and not to try and get any kind of training effect at all. It's like a free massage. So a zone one bike ride or a zone one swim are excellent for this. You'll never have me give you a zone one run because I believe that the impact of physical landing on the pavement and gravity and the pounding that the muscles get means that we can never truly get a recovery run. So you won't ever get a zone one recovery run. But certainly within cycling, it's possible to cycle really, really easily. And within swimming, it's possible to swim really easy as well. 
Zone two is where the majority of our Ironman athletes are going to spend their time. That's our aerobic training zone. And in that zone, we can primarily fuel our bodies by fat. And the main purpose of this training is we can get faster while still getting the majority of energy from fat. Now, when we start off, that isn't going to be the case. When we start off, our bodies are going to mainly be used to burning carbohydrate and we're going to have to teach them to burn more fat and more fat. And as you get better at this, the percentage of fat that you burn at any given intensity is going to get greater. And all the way through zone two, you can be expecting to primarily be burning fat all the way through. When you start out, it's probably not the case. Your your maximum fat burning is probably in the middle of zone two when you first start out your training. I'm going to step from zone two through to zone four. Zone four is what we're going to define as functional threshold. So if you're with a power meter, that's functional threshold power, functional threshold pace. Or for swimming, we're going to call it critical swim speed or CSS. So that's the kind of power that you can put out or the pace that you can put out for an hour that we talked about earlier. And then we've got a zone either side of this. We've got zone three and we've got zone five. Zone five is going to be used extremely sparingly and with a very specific measure. Zone five is our maximum oxygen uptake. It's VO2 max intervals. So they're intervals between one minute and three minutes long with relatively long recoveries. And they're used for forcing your muscles to adapt to getting the maximum oxygen into them in the minimum possible time. Okay, the really, really hard intervals. So that's zone five in heart rate, it's zone five in power, and in swim swim smooth terms, it's well above CSS pace. If we go back a step, we've got zone three heart rate, zone three power. Now that's probably more applicable to a half Ironman type effort. So training in this zone is gonna be critical for half Ironman athletes. We're gonna be doing some extended periods of work in zone three when we're training for Ironman. Um, and you might hear me refer later on to sweet spot training. That's based in zone three as well. Um, and in swimming, again, we're looking at the area just a little bit below the critical swim speed. OK, and that's really the overview of all five of our training zones. Bike testing, the FTP test. So first up, FTP stands for functional threshold power. And that obviously relies on you having a power meter to be able to measure it. If you haven't got a power meter, that's not a problem. We can do the test just using heart rate monitor. And lo and behold, the number that comes out at the end of this is going to be your functional threshold heart rate. So the two are very similar. And so it doesn't matter at this point if you haven't got a power meter. A power meter will make your training more accurate. It will make your racing easier. And if you can afford one, I'd really encourage you you know, make it the next purchase that you have before you buy anything else. I think it's probably more valuable than race wheels, certainly for the purposes of training. OK, so the general overview of the FTP test is that you're going to do a 20 minute time trial effort on the bike. And that does mean you're going to go as hard as you possibly can go and sustain for 20 minutes. The test is written within the team oxygenetic plans, includes a warm up that's got some efforts in there to help kind of open your system up. It's going to give you the ability to sort of experience what a couple of minutes or a 30 second period at threshold feels like. And then there's going to be a recovery period of a few minutes before you go into the 20 minutes itself. Now, the warm up that you do isn't that important as long as you get three to five efforts of between 30 seconds and a minute in at or around the kind of effort that you feel you can sustain for 20 minutes. And that's just going to get your body systems up and firing. OK, um, 
Next up, we've got the general overview of this test and how it's going to feel. As I mentioned earlier, it is a 20 minute all out test. That means that if you've got a power meter, we're looking for the number to hover around the same number for the whole way through the test. If you've ever done a 10 mile time trial on the bike, you'll know what that means. Like it's very, very difficult to maintain the kind of power output for 20 minutes. And if you get to about the 12, 14 minute mark thinking, I'm not sure I can continue here. You're probably around the right power output. You are going to have to have a word with yourself and really push yourself to complete the 20 minutes. But we really want this to be 20 minutes at the maximum pace that you can sustain. And really, I don't want you worrying about what your heart rate monitor says as you do this test. I don't want you worrying too much about what your power meter says when you do this heart rate test. You're just going to do the maximum that you can for these 20 minutes and really get it all out. As soon as the 20 minutes is over, hit the lap function on your heart rate or on your power meter head unit and then just coast down to an easy speed, get your breath back and do a 15 minute or so gentle cool down and just flush out. You know, there's going to be a lot of lactic acid in your muscles after you do this test. So you really want to make sure you do a good cool down afterwards. If you're doing the test with heart rate, heart rate on its own is absolutely fine. And that's going to give us a good result. So what we're going to do here is we're going to do the test exactly as we've described. It's a 20 minute time trial effort. Um, you're going to press the lap function on your heart rate monitor as you start the test. And you're going to press the lap function on your heart rate monitor as you finish the test. Even if you forget to do this, it isn't a problem because we can highlight the area later on within training peaks. But that, if you do remember to press the lap function, it is going to make it easier to, uh, to do the analysis later on. And after we've done this, your average heart rate for the 20 minutes is going to be your functional threshold heart rate. And although it doesn't feel like it, you could sustain that for an hour in a time trial situation or a race situation out on the road. In training, it's much, much more difficult. And so we only do it for 20 minutes. And that gives us really pretty accurate within a couple of beats, plus or minus, of how the test would come out if we'd done it in a physiology laboratory. If you're doing the test with a power meter, well, you're going to get much more accurate results out of this. And you've got the benefit that all the way through, you're going to be able to be looking at these numbers and trying to hold your power number at the constant number all the way through. And ideally, if you can increase the power across the last 10 minutes of the set just a little bit, then you know you've paced it ideally. A good tip from me is I want you to have one of the fields set up on the head unit that tells you what the average power is for this lap. So if you press the lap function as you start your 20 minute effort, that average power number, it isn't going to jump around like all the power numbers do, you know, the one second power and three second power. The average is going to give you a good number for what's going on across the whole amount that you've been riding for so far. And if you've already got a 10 second average set up on one of the fields in there as well, you can essentially compare that 10 second average number to the average so far. And basically across the last half of the test, try and keep your 10 second number slightly higher than the average so far. And that kind of guarantees you're going to put out slightly more power across the second half of the test. It certainly guarantees that the test is what you call a valid test. Now, it's worth mentioning for both heart rate and power test people, it might be that you go off too hard and you explode. And after five minutes, you genuinely can't continue with the effort at the pace and you feel you've got to change the gears and slow down. If that's the case, I want you to stop the test immediately and I want you to just cool yourself off for 10 minutes. You've only done a five minute effort, so you're going to go again. 
and this time you're not going to go as hard. So if you feel after five minutes you've blown yourself completely and you will get this sense sometimes, just stop the test, just ride really, really easy, a spin in the little ring for 10 minutes and then have a crack at the test again and that is going to give you you know, a really accurate number again. Don't worry too much about those first five minutes. It's not going to affect the 20 minute test too much at all. Now, as for what we do with the test results afterwards, with both the heart rate and the power number, we're going to do a little bit of analysis within training peaks. So for heart rate users, your average heart rate across the 20 minute section is going to be your functional threshold heart rate. For power meter users, the number that you've got, the average power for the 20 minutes, we're going to take 0.95 of that number, and that's going to be your functional threshold power. So really simple. You get a calculator afterwards, and whatever your average power was for 20 minutes, you multiply it by 0.95, so it's 95% of that number. So let's give you an example here. Say you put out 200 watts for 20 minutes. We're going to multiply that by 0.95 and end up with 190 watts. And so your functional threshold power is going to be 190 watts. Swim testing, the CSS pace test. So first up, CSS stands for critical swim speed. And it's just a different way of saying functional threshold pace for swimming. Critical swim speed uh, has been brought into the modern the modern world, really, of swimming by the coaches over at Swim Smooth, Paul Newsom and Adam Young. And they've got a very nifty little Swim Smooth CSS pace calculator over on their website, which will direct you to. The web address is swimsmooth.com forward slash CSS dash calculator dot HTML. So you can head on over there after you've done the test and plug your numbers into there. And that's going to give you a number for your swim pace per 100 metres. So the overview of the CSS swim test is that we're going to get a measure of your ability to swim for basically the pace you could hold for an hour. But we're not going to get you to swim for an hour in training. We're going to get you to swim a 400 metres flat out. You're going to have five to 10 minutes of easy recovery between that way. You can either sit on the side of the pool or you can do some very easy swimming up and down. Give yourself that five to 10 minute recovery period because you're going to need it. And then you're going to swim a 200 meters test again, absolutely flat out. And at the end of it, you're going to get two numbers. You're going to have your number for your 400 meters and you're going to have your number for the 200 meters. You're going to plug those two numbers into the uh, Swim Smooth calculator that's going to give you your CSS pace uh, for swimming. Now, the reason that this is useful is as we're doing our swim sets all through our training, there's going to be some main sets that are based around 20 to 30 minutes of hard swimming at around your CSS pace. Just like your quality swim, where, uh, sorry, your quality bike ride will have some intervals, FTP pace or heart rate, your swimming is going to have some quality intervals thrown in at your CSS pace. Now, not all swimmers at all levels of the plan are going to have these CSS um, swim sets in there, but it's a real good measure to have something to relate yourself to because a good rule of thumb is that your Ironman pace is going to be somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 seconds per 100 slower than your CSS pace. So it's going to give us a guideline that when we're doing our long aerobic swims and our long broken aerobic swims, that's going to be kind of the pace you're shooting for, that CSS plus or uh, plus 10 seconds or so. And again, it's individual to every person, but that gives us a good rule of thumb to start with. 
So talking through the test from the start, if you read through the set, you'll see there's probably 800 meters or so of warm up before you do this test. It involves some harder swimming than usual, but that's important to kind of wake your body up and, and get yourself ready for this test. But you don't want to be pushing yourself so hard that you feel it's going to negatively affect the 400 that you're about to swim and the 200 that you're about to swim. So I trust you guys. You've got a good feel for how your bodies are. If you think you'd benefit from a longer or a shorter warm up, then by all means go for that. But we're aiming for 400 meters, a recovery and 200 meters at the pace where you go absolutely flat out. Now, lastly, for me on testing, the main purpose of us doing all of these tests so we can set zones isn't that we're going to necessarily be trying to push you to go really, really hard at the top end of any of these zones. It's to reinforce the fact that it's important to get an accurate number for around your zone two, and then you're going to hang out at or below the top of zone two for the majority of the sessions where that's appropriate, and at or around zone four for the sessions that you're going to do on the bike for that one key bike session of intervals. But the key thing for Ironman athletes to take in is that the main adaptation we can get for you that's going to help on race day is getting your body to burn fat more efficiently. By more efficiently, I mean allowing you to go slightly faster while still providing most of the energy from fat. At the moment, your body has a kind of um, upside down U-shaped curve in terms of how it burns fat. And at that maximum point at the top of the upside down U, that's where you're best hanging out. If you do most of your training around that intensity, your body will gradually allow you to go faster and faster and faster while still burning fat. If you go quite a bit harder than that point all the time, well, what's going to happen is your body isn't going to learn that it needs to adapt by burning more fat more efficiently. It's just going to demand more carbohydrates from you. It's going to essentially switch off the fat supply and turn on more of the carbohydrate supply. And the only way for you to keep putting that carbohydrate into your body is to keep absorbing it. Now, in, in rough terms, your Ironman is going to be costing you between 600 and 900 calories an hour and your body can only absorb about 300 calories of carbohydrate an hour while you're exercising. So if you burn through all your carb stores and you haven't taught your body to metabolize fat more efficiently, you end up walking on the run simply because you haven't got any carbohydrate left. You can't take in more than that 300 calories an hour and absorb it. And so your body's limited to being able to you know, sort of all it's ever done is training in training is perform training fueled by carbs. And on race day, it's trying to be fueled by carbs and it can't be because there aren't any left and you can't get them in fast enough. So the main purpose of this hanging out around zone two in the sessions where you're doing that is gradually pushing up higher and higher the pace that your body will fuel you mainly by fat. Okay. So that's the end of our, our overview of testing and zones and, and the reason basically why we test with zones. I hope you've enjoyed that. Any questions, fire them over to help at auctionaddict.com. Hope you're having a great week and I hope the testing goes really well this week for you. Now, run testing, the uh, Jack Daniels VDOT calculator. Jack Daniels is without doubt one of the most brilliant sports scientists I think that's ever lived and he's managed to turn laboratory sports science into a real world understandable version that has incredible scientific validation and it means that in reality you don't need to go into a laboratory these days to get tested for um, for lactate threshold or things like that because he's done testing on hundreds of thousands of athletes 
and is essentially allowed us to work out what our VO2 max score will be simply from our ability to run races at given paces. So if you want to read more about this, Jack Daniels' book is called Jack Daniels' Running Formula. Highly recommended. It's probably the best all-round running textbook that you can get out there. And, and more than anything, it'll help explain all kinds of physiology to you that probably hold true, I'd say, as much for swimming and biking as it does for running as well. So um, the first thing to mention here is that I haven't set anybody a run test because I figure everybody has been out and done a recent run race. If that isn't the case, you can probably get yourself, you know, within plus or minus a few seconds, um, an accurate result just by estimating how well you can run 5K or 10K at the moment. Um, it goes without saying if your 5K time was set in the peak of last season and you were in fantastic run shape, and now you're not in quite such fantastic run shape where you've put a few pounds on, it's a good idea to err on the side of caution when you're using the calculation number here. So let's say your you know, your PB for 5K in the middle of the summer is 19 minutes when you're going absolutely flat out and you're in great shape. Maybe you want to plug in 19.20 or 19.30 into the, uh, the run pace calculator, and that'll give you probably more accurate zones for now. Which brings us on to, you can find a run calculator online, actually on our website at oxygenaddict.com forward slash V dot, or one word, V-D-O-T. That's got a little calculator there that you can plug in a recent race time, and it will then throw up some numbers for you. And I'm planning to talk through those numbers for you now. So the first thing to be aware of is when you're going through these paces, it's going to throw up four or five different paces that, that correlate pretty well, actually, with the level one, two, three, four, five in heart rate and power terms that we talked about. The first pace that we're going to talk about is what Jack Daniels calls easy pace or endurance pace. E-pace is a mainly zone two type effort. So it's an aerobic effort. We're mainly fat burning in this zone, especially when we get into really good shape. We're going to be primarily burning fat in the easy pace zone. And it's a key pace for us to train at. Most of the training sessions I'll be setting for iron distance athletes will be E-pace runs. And the reason for that is if we look at our weekly structure across the whole week, what we find is that we're doing lots of hard bike sessions. We're doing some hard swimming that's going to positively affect your cardiovascular fitness. We don't also need to do a lot of hard run training as well. So the run training that you'd be getting is absolutely fine to run mostly at easy pace and even slower than that because the main purpose of the run training is to get your body used to the pounding that it takes by being bounced against concrete or tarmac repeatedly for, for your Ironman marathon, what could be four or five hours. The main limiter for most athletes is not going to be their cardiovascular fitness. It's going to be how well their body's physical structure stands up to that pounding. So we're talking about your thigh muscles being able to control the eccentric loading when your body lands and it breaks that motion as you hit the ground. We're talking about the ligaments and tendons in your knees and ankles being strong enough and having the durability to not get niggled, not get sore and essentially not get injured by this repetitive landing on the pavement. And to do that, it's just as effective doing this at a relatively slow pace, so E-pace or slower, than it is to do it at hard pace. The, the big benefit of doing your runs at a relatively easy pace is that you're going to recover from them really quickly. You can completely recover from an E-pace run in 24 hours, whereas if you run some of the faster 
um, efforts. If you've ever been to the track and done some really fast track workouts or run really hard up and down hills, you'll know your legs can be sore for two, three, sometimes four days afterwards. We don't want that for overall training. We want you to be bouncing back from your run sessions day after day after day and feeling good to go for the next run or the next bike or the next swim session. So the first pace there is easy pace. The second pace is what Daniels calls marathon pace or M pace runs. And in his traditional structure, it's used for runners who are going to race a marathon. It's the kind of pace he uses to prepare people for race pace at marathon. Now, it's worth pointing out, I think the M pace that the calculator throws out is quite ambitious for athletes, certainly for triathletes racing a marathon. It tends to be a bit quick for uh, an actual ability to run that marathon. But the purpose of it is to be running, I think, a little bit faster than your goal marathon pace to prepare you in training. So typically you'll do runs of 6, 8, 10, 12 miles at end pace in the build-up to a standalone marathon, and that's going to prepare you for the demands of racing a marathon. We won't be doing that kind of running in the build-up for an Ironman marathon because we're never going to be running anywhere near that kind of speed. We'll probably use M-Pace running preparing people for 70.3 triathlon because if they have a really good run at 70.3, their run pace can be close to that that sort of M-Pace that gets thrown out by Daniels. So again, in terms of the heart rate zones, we're looking at a kind of zone three sustainable tempo type effort where, yes, when you're really fit, you're going to be able to sustain it for 12 miles. But initially, it might be a kind of six mile tempo run type effort. The next pace on Daniels' uh, sort of increasing speeds here is T pace or threshold pace. Now this ties in beautifully with functional threshold power for the bike, CSS pace on the swim. Threshold pace is the pace you can sustain for an hour when you're very, very fit. So this will be race pace for 10K for people whose 10K pace is close to an hour. It's race pace for people who um, race 10 miles at this pace if they're racing 10 miles in about an hour. And for some of our elites like Mo Farah, his T pace is going to be around his half marathon race pace. So it's all around that ability to sustain it for an hour. The next level up on Daniels' formula is the I pace runs. Now, I pace is VO2 max pace running. It's zone five in heart rate. It's power zone five on the bike. It's sustainable. Usually you'll only ever do this if you're running at the track, but we're talking efforts of between a minute and three or four minutes long with probably an equal recovery in that time frame. Um, extremely taxing. Running at that pace can be very hard on your legs. It's traditionally used in preparing athletes for Olympic distance racing and above. And uh, it's really very effective at getting people fit quickly for short distance races. However, the drawback of it is you take a long time to recover. It's not unusual to be sore for two days after an I-pace track workout. And so for longer distance athletes at 70.3 and Ironman, the, the bang that you get is completely outweighed by the fact it takes you two to three days to recover from it. And we've got one pace above the I-pace running that you might also see, which is our pace or repetition pace. That is the kind of training that pure runners do just for leg speed. And again, I wouldn't recommend anybody doing that kind of training unless they're training for Olympic or sprint distance or they're from a very pure run background. So we'll give you an example here. Um, a runner who's got a PB of 20 minutes for 5K, their T pace is going to come out at 1 minute 43 for 400 metres, or that's 6.53 per mile. Their I pace would come out at 1.34 per 400 metres, 
or 619 per mile. So the T pace running here, it's really important to see that this pace is there for a particular reason. It is possible for you to run faster than T pace if you've been set a T pace workout. It's possible for you to run faster than E pace if you've been set an E pace workout, but there's no point. You're not gonna stress the energy system that's appropriate any more by going slightly faster than you are by going slightly slower. And again, the main purpose of the E-Pace run is number one, for that adaptation of your body getting hammered by being bounced off the concrete and so strengthening joints, ligaments, tendons and muscles. And number two, teaching your body to be a little bit more efficient each time at burning fat. If you run, say, 20 seconds a mile faster than your E-Pace run, well, you could easily sustain that. But what's going to happen is your body's going to essentially start to close down the fat burning and start to ramp up the carbohydrate burning. And that's absolutely not what we want. We want you hanging around about the point your body can maximally burn fat. And by hanging out around that point, your body is going to make you more efficient there. And it's going to gradually increase the pace that you can sustain while still providing energy mainly from fat. And that's how our, our excellent pro Ironman athletes are able to run at six minutes a mile almost and still be able to complete that that sort of Ironman marathon workout at the end of such a long day.